Hello guys and welcome back to Make Contain, the podcast Breaking the Sigma. I'm your host Dan Kill and each week I'll be exploring different topics and inviting experts to kind of share their insights to me. So if you're new to the Make Contain podcast, make sure to click that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future episodes every Monday morning. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. George Dutoy and I feel very kind of privileged to have another doctor on the podcast. They had kind of Professor Anne Fox on the podcast a few weeks ago and I know how hard it can be for patients to kind of get access to doctors and I know I get a lot of DMs and questions and I'm always like, I don't know, I'm not a doctor. So it's great to kind of, to be able to ask these questions on the podcast and for kind of Dr. George to kind of share his knowledge and everything from kind of why we're becoming more allergic, anxiety, weaning. Like my sister's recently had a baby. She was just asking me the other day, like, should I give him nuts early? And I was like, I don't know. So obviously it's great to kind of ask the Dr. George to about that, but also more importantly, kind of studies and research and allergy desensitization in older patients, but also in children. In questions, which I just didn't get a chance to ask last time, like, for me, like, I really want to find out, obviously, if someone's eating nuts near me with my allergy being airborne, kind of go into anaphylactic shock. So I had all these questions, which are great to kind of get his insights on. So yeah, if you do enjoy podcasts, make sure to click subscribe. And like, if you do get a chance to kind of share it with your family or friends on social media, I really appreciate that. And quickly, just before I jump into the episode, the podcast is sponsored by Good It's Gluten Free. And it's great to have them board the podcast. It's a completely free from brand, free from tree nuts, peanuts, gluten, milk, egg, and sesame. And they do these incredible meal kits and wraps. I had the fajita hit kits the other day, and that was absolutely delicious. And they also do different cuisines like katsu curry. And they've just become available in Asda. So yeah, make sure to check them out. I'll leave a link in the description below. And like I say in every podcast, grab yourself a cup of tea. Let's jump straight into it. And welcome to another episode of May Contain. So I'm super excited about this episode. I'm joined by another doctor. So I'm joined by Dr. George Dutoy. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Thanks, Dan, for coming around. No, thanks for coming to your lovely flat as well. It's unbelievable. <laughs> the terrace is incredible. So yeah, no, uh, it's nice. great. Early cup of coffee, get us going. <laughs> yeah, I know. I had a coffee this morning. So yeah, I think every doctor I've had on the, on the podcast, it's been an early morning. So yeah, get the coffee to get me going. For anyone who might not be aware of kind of the trials and the studies you've done, would you like to do a little introduction to yourself? Yeah, so I'm a, a professor in pediatric allergy working in the NHS uh, down at the Evelina Children's Hospital, also um, at King's College London is the university I work at, and then also separately do some private practice. So a nice mix of jobs, but my true passion is research. I think you can impact a lot more patients through a clinical trial than what you can do on a, on a one-on-one basis. So both are very enjoyable, but the research is really what drives me. And my research focus over the years, along with colleagues, has been prevention in, in studies such as the LEAP and the EAT study, and increasingly more recently treatment. So desensitization programs as a co-investigator on the PATCH trials and on um, oral desensitization, particularly to peanut in the first instance. How did you get into becoming uh, pediatrics and, and, and allergies? I thought it was interesting, obviously, I had Professor Dr. Fox on um, the podcast the other day. And I thought it's always interesting to obviously kind of what is your journey and how did you kind of get into that? Yeah, so medicine's a long journey and uh, you may anticipate a a destination, but uh, most doctors you ask uh, would have been deviated by by life events or work events. And so I initially trained in Cape Town as as a doctor and then did a a four-year specialization as a pediatrician. And right at the end of that is the time when you subspecialize and I had a, a great interest in endocrinology and weight management and, and general nutrition, child health. 
But a post came up in Allergy under Professor Eugene Weinberg and Kasim Mutala, and they said, would you like to do this? And in, in truth, it seemed a bit dull from the outside. I thought, why would, <laughs> why would you, you know, I'll be this girl's lessons for a while. <laughs> That's right. So anyhow, they, they, they um, um, pulled me in and I absolutely loved it, particularly the niche of food allergy. So food allergy has been under-researched compared to asthma, eczema, hay fever. And uh, I joined Gideon Lack and we've been, you know, collaborating, doing research for many years now. Yeah. No, it's been incredible. Obviously, I've been kind of seeing research you've been doing with Evelina, like Leap and Eat. Are they all very similar in regards to desensitization or is every study slightly different? They, they're very different. So Leap uh, was a sort of pioneer trial in the field. It, it was very well supported by NIAID, uh, the Immune Tolerance Network, uh, MRC, many others. And it was a large high-risk trial. So these were kids really at risk of developing allergy and an intervention. And the intervention was just to peanut, early peanut consumption compared to avoidance with a very, very strong effect that has now changed guidelines. In fact, based on those guidelines, we'd like to think that at least 100,000 kids are prevented from developing peanut allergy a year just through early weaning, a nutritious, healthy strategy. The EAT study, Early Acquisition of Tolerance, or inquiring about um, tolerance, uh, was six foods. So the question, if peanut works, everyone likes to extrapolate to other foods, saying, well, it must early introduction must work for other foods, yeah. tree nuts, sesame. And that hasn't been very well established. There are more and more studies slowly coming out. This was not a high-risk cohort. It was a larger cohort. Um, and those kids, so we followed both the LEAP and the EAT kids up and just actually uh, two months ago closed the door on those two trials. So they, many of them are teenagers yeah. now or older in their first decade of life. And so we're looking at the long-term consequences, behavior, sleep, nutrition, other allergies, asthma, hay fever, eczema. So it's been a real privilege uh, to, to work with all these families. Uh, we get to know them so well. They, they truly are participants. But you How know. many years is it then, I, the, the study? LEAP's uh, been a two-decade um, wow. project, yeah, from inception to yeah. funding to enrollment. Yeah. Uh, it was a five-year study, and then we did LEAP on. Um, so the kids had eaten peanut, and then we took that away, and the families kindly said they would do this to see if, if avoidance would then undo the benefit of early consumption. Yeah. And so we've been working on these trials um, for a long time. So those are prevention trials. More recently, we've also been doing a lot of work on treatment. People, because these interventions don't protect everyone from developing these allergies. So those who slip through the net, as it were, require interventions for treatment. What's the success rate? Because I've seen um, you recently did, you was on the radio, and I know that some kids got placebos and then some kids actually got the, the kind of treatment, what was the success rate? Yeah, so in the treatment trials, and, the, and this is pretty standard across many different studies, these trials are not for everyone or the intervention is not for everyone. So probably six or seven children out of 10 will complete a program, get themselves up to a maintenance dose. And, and in all the studies, that maintenance dose varies. But they can then um, enjoy everyday life knowing that generally they are bite proof. If they were to accidentally eat this food, yeah. they would be very unlikely to have a reaction. And if they did have a reaction, it, it would almost certainly be milder than what it would have been had they not been desensitized. So the success rate is high. I mean, that's as far as medical interventions go, that's right up there, you know, 70% get onto maintenance. We're still learning if children will keep up these interventions. So if we can introduce it while they're young, will they do it as teenagers and in their 20s? So after the trial, would they still have to do it 
every every day yeah these are not cures you don't switch off the gene that is making the antibody you simply generate other controlling factors protective antibodies like the igg antibody that suppresses the allergy ige antibody a bit like covid everybody yeah. wanted igg after vaccination so these are the good guys and the other factors as well and these moderate your allergies and just calm down the immune response over time but if you stop, if you interrupt that process, our current understanding is that for most children, your tolerance will then wear off. So you have to keep this up. And the question is, you know, will teenagers long, do this? Yeah. And we know most people can, can brush their teeth on a day, daily basis. So we'd like to think that they could yeah. also take a peanut on a daily basis. Because I've heard, like, I think I was speaking to Dr. Adam Fox, and I know it's quite exciting times in the space where they could maybe put it in the toothpaste, like you said, and they brush your teeth every day. Um, are you really excited about the kind of the future of this and, and where it's going to go? I am. Uh, desensitization as we know it has been around for a long time. So you have to ask yourself, why isn't this, you, you know, why didn't you undergo these programs and other people? And either they weren't offered to you because uh, doctors didn't want to carry this workload or the uh, side effects were probably, uh, you know, a, a little bit unpleasant. So people didn't want to do it or it was too risky or it didn't work. So they but we've refined that, and, and Adam is right. We've now done these major studies um, and, and have a, a wonderful cohort of, of children and data to look at and really understand this process. So it's becoming safer, simpler, and the long-term outcomes are now better understood. So it started off with nuts, and I had some parents kind of reached out to me on Instagram and said, are they going to do it for other allergies, or is it worthwhile is it, if it's only one allergy? Um, is, it, is this trial looking at potentially doing it for kind of the different allergies? within the top four. Yeah, so that's, that's a big pity with desensitization is that it's allergen specific. A bit like if you get meningitis vaccinations, we'll cover, you know, numerous serotypes. Your immune system is such a complex system and so specific that if we desensitize you to peanut, it won't have a benefit on, on your tree nut allergies or sesame allergy. And we know that a high percentage of people allergic to, to one class of, of nut are allergic to the others. And so we're looking at multi, um, you know, nut interventions yeah. and, and people are slowly starting to trial that with simple desensitization. In truth, I think the field will be leapfrogged with the advent of biologics. So biologics are these designer drugs that can just mop up some inflammatory cells and calm down your immune response. So under the cover and protection of a biologic, usually an injectable um, a medicine, you can introduce many of the, of, of the nuts or other foods the hassle is these are not commonplace yet. You know, we're still researching them. And you may, in fact, just kick the can down the road that, that when you stop these medications, because you can't stay on this forever, that the allergy may just resurface and you'll go back to your native sort of immune allergy state. So it's, it's an extremely exciting time. If you look at research over time online, you can see just it's growing exponentially in the field of food allergy. And obviously from the studies, obviously it's more effective with children. Do you ever feel that obviously with teenagers, I mean, I'm getting, I'm 30 now. Am I a bit too late to the game? Would you, would you say in regards to this treatment for myself? It's been interesting when we've, we've tried these interventions in, in older patients, uh, adherence has not been high. I think m most people, um, as young as you are, you, you learn to live with your, your allergies and you're happy with your diet and you're comfortable. And so an intervention where there may be side effects, where you're eating what you're allergic to every single day in incremental doses is not appealing to everyone. But immunologically, sure, it can work in adulthood. If you look at pollen immunotherapy, that 
that was far ahead of, of the curve compared to food allergy research. Most of the data comes from adults. So you, you can teach an old dog new tricks yeah. immunologically, but we, I mean, I'm a pediatrician. We work with kids. We like to think that the immune system is, is more malleable, that you can have a greater effect when children are younger. And, and certainly adherence is higher because the parents yeah. sort of vouch for, for their diet and, and look after that. And also just logistically, there are many appointments where you have to be observed for an hour. That's very hard when you're at uni or, or working, whereas younger kids, you can work around yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. And I know you kind of spoke recently, like, obviously this trial was so successful. Could it potentially work for other kind of allergic diseases? Um, so peanut has attracted most of the research and, and based on, on that trial, um, uh, Amun has now had this product license. So there is now a peanut product 4 to 17. Uh, the, 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 there is no other product for the other foods on the market yet. So people are just using native food. Um, so, so the peanut product license is highly refined, well-characterized peanut flour. So when you're giving one, three, six milligrams, a tiny amount of peanut, you know that's exactly what you're giving. If you try and shave that off, off a real peanut, it's quite difficult to do. And well, it's doable, but it's, it's, it's more difficult to do. And peanuts have many variable characteristics. Yeah. So we, we do hope and increasingly will move out um, to other food allergens. But we need to catch up. Allergy clinics need to go from just diagnosing allergies to starting to treat more and more patients. And, and luckily, pe peanut has pioneered this field. But we hope very soon. And, and many clinics are slowly starting this. Um, but it takes it takes a lot of effort. It it, it 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 takes an interaction between patients. They really need to understand what they're doing, understand the risk. Not it's not for everyone. Not everybody yeah. wants to do it. You need staff. You need space. You need a, a lot of admin time as well. And I really want to ask in regards to allergies. It's doubled over kind of the last ten years. And I kind of read that even in places like Africa and Asia, allergies are kind of becoming more common. Do you know? The reason behind this is environmental changes or what's your kind of thinking behind that? So there, there are many epigenetic phenomena. So we know that human genes will take you know, hundreds of years to change. So, so something has just switched this on and, and everyone can become allergic. You know, any of us watching this could develop an allergy tonight to a different fruit. or So, so the immune system is capable of, of switching on and starting to make antibodies. What does that? So we, modern living is certainly associated w with it. So, so, so what is included there? Uh, cesarean sections, antibiotics, highly processed food, highly heated food, highly diverse food, highly co uh, carbohydrate-rich foods. Um, weaning practices have changed enormously. Yeah, it'd be great to jump into that at some point. Cause yeah. <laughs> vaccination, antibiotics, all these insults to the biome. We know that these young kids we see in clinic are, are more bacteria cell for cell than what they are human. You know, we are just a bunch of bacteria, a whole zoo, a biome. And we now increasingly understand that that is very important at programming um, your immune system and your response to drugs and foods. And so the field uh, is in its infancy. Uh, we're not sure of exactly which one factor is turning this on. And I'm, I'm certainly, um, uh, we have worked with colleagues in Cape Town where we've looked at, at rural and, and urban um, um, folk in the Western Cape. And you can see urbanization is, is exposed to this. Many of the kids living in, in urban areas that were studied, they still live in squalor. So their bacterial load is still high, but something else has changed. Something that they're eating, uh, you know, all, all, all the modern day living processes. I don't know if you got the answer to this question, but I was watching a YouTube video and you, you kind of spoke about Greece. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of spoke about how Greece, our kind of food allergies are kind of less common there. 
Do you know? Do you know why that could be, or is it? So, so throughout the world, milk and egg are common allergies, and then and they're usually outgrown. They're usually childhood allergies for most individuals. They're a real blighter if you if you carry it um, in, into your your teenage years because can cause severe reactions. Then, depending on where you are in the world, the sort of third, fourth, fifth, sixth most common allergens probably depend on what you're exposed to. So I'm not convinced that in high-risk kids in Greece, they have less allergy. Yeah. They certainly would have less peanut allergy because it's not in the traditional diet. Other nuts would be eaten, you know, more sort of hazel, almond, pistachio, cashew. Yeah, because they don't really cook with many nuts. Um from what I've saw, I go out there quite a lot and you Correct. don't really see many nuts. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, Mediterranean diet, which is very healthy, uh, is rich in, in certain nuts, but they're different nuts. So it depends where you are in the world as, as to what a priority is. I mean, I've been to places over the year, initially Russia, for example, there was very little peanut. But increasingly, that's become a problem. Uh, Japan, uh, the traditional diet would have had very little peanut. But uh, recently, on a trip to Japan, I've never seen more peanut products in an airport than what I, d- I did in Japan. Oh, wow, really? So, so diets change over time, and that influences allergy rates. Yeah, I really want to ask, like, in regards to, I know what is kind of the best practice because I know there's kind of parents out there with kids with allergies and. I think there's so much information, it can actually seem quite confusing and maybe perhaps a bit overwhelming. Um, what is the best practice in regards to kind of getting the right treatment um, when you've got allergies? And sourcing out treatment. So, so if you suspect your child is allergic, the real red flags would be early onset eczema. Early onset generalized eczema, particularly in the exposed areas, is a risk factor for development of food allergy. So many patients would come see me and say, which food is causing my child's eczema? And I have to turn that argument on its head and say, be cautious, the eczema is very likely to cause the food allergy. If you look at peanut, for example, most kids will react to peanut on their first, second or second or third consumption. So eating peanut never made them allergic. Where did they see this protein in their lives? They probably saw it through their large organ, the skin that was inflamed with eczema, that was then tickled with peanut, so kissed or touched or, and it's a bit like a- Got through the skin then. Correct, so a bit like your phone searching for a Wi-Fi signal, your immune system will scan, and if you're genetically prone and, and the wrong hit of all those factors we mentioned at the wrong time, you'll start making antibodies. And then the first time you eat this protein in grams, if you haven't eaten it before to protect yourself, you'll have an allergic reaction. So parents need to worry about eczema. With your first baby, it's hard. Nobody wants to apply. The only thing that really gets control of severe eczema in young babies uh, is, is, is good skin care, but usually an anti-inflammatory, like a, a, a steroid medication for a short period. And people are really cautious of these, particularly with the firstborn. Second and third, they're a bit, bit more liberal with application. But if you don't seal up that skin barrier and wean the babies very early, uh, you, you really are at greater risk of developing food. Most babies don't develop food allergy, but that risk is higher in that cohort. What to ask as well in regards to obviously people develop allergies later on in life. I had someone, when I started the podcast a few years ago, she got a peanut allergy when she was like 21. Why is that? It's, it, it, I just find it so fascinating that the body can change and then one day you might have an allergy and she was literally had a Christmas dinner, reached over for a bag of nuts like she does every Christmas, and then went into anaphylactic shock out of the boiler. The immune system is so pliable and so variable, all the immune responses you can have over time. It's the most fascinating system to study, and hence I love this field so much. Forget AI, the immune system is where it's all happening. So there, there are various forms of food allergy. The typical food allergy most folk are aware of is the egg and the milk and the peanut nuts develop early in life and your immune response is to the seed storage proteins, um, at least in nuts. So these are stubborn proteins so that if, if a cow eats a cashew, it passes through the tract and can grow as a plant. 
uh, they conserve the genetic material, they're very stubborn, and young babies detect those if they become allergic and usually stay allergic to those proteins. Then as you get older, there's a different variant. If you're very pollen allergic, there are proteins in pollen that you will find in food. So many of your friends who say they're hazelnut allergic or their mouth tickles or tingles or they get mild symptoms with hazelnut may actually have that milder variant due to their birch pollen or grass pollen sensitivity. So the, the case scenario you give of a 21-year-old having a reaction to nut uh, she would either have had uh, true um, primary food allergy, as we all understand it, or this milder variant, which is still very troubling, yeah. that catches people out. Of course, you can develop food allergy of any variant at any time, and, and any immune insult, so be, not insult, but, but, but influence, such as puberty, any hormonal factors, menopause, say like chemo, like correct, yeah, pregnancy is a big immune adjustment, because what you're carrying is, is half your partner's genetically, and, and you know, to hold on to that baby and to nourish that baby in utero takes some big immune changes. So those are all times that can, eat, can moderate allergies. Some moms will tell me the allergies got better and some worse. I really kind of like kind of talk about obviously weeding and I know I get a lot of kind of parents reach out to me and I'm always like I'm not a doctor like always kind of seek medical kind of help um can parents kind of reduce the kids of having food allergies um during pregnancy by kind of avoidance and what's kind of your kind of insights into that yeah so it's a, a com complex answer because there are these distinct periods um so so in utero when mom's eating uh, we need to discuss that diet of course, the baby is then born and, and mom is um, um, breastfeeding if possible. And then soon thereafter, the, the baby starts eating. So in utero, the data is a bit mixed. It's, it's a very weak design with some studies showing if mom eats common allergens, it's a slight risk factor. Or if she, if she doesn't, it's a slight risk factor. Thankfully, there are some um, very good studies coming out now, such as the Prego study in, in Australia, where women are randomized to eat high dose peanut or egg or just normal everyday peanut or egg. It's, it's no longer ethical to, to ask people to avoid these allergens so high dose versus normal and those studies need to come out and that that will really help us understand that process what is complex about that process is what mom eats during pregnancy is is in the house so we know peanut dust will go everywhere even if you you clean and um, fastidiously um, and and so the baby will be born into a, a low high or, or moderate um, environment and if they've got eczema that's a route of sensitization so you've got to understand that this this becomes a little bit complex then the baby is born and mom is breastfeeding. And again, the data is very mixed and, and rather weak, but there are good studies coming out to understand if, if what mom eats is really important, um, high dose or, or, or avoidance. And of course, what she eats is on her lips and her hands and, and, and probably other household members are eating it. If your baby's got eczema, you're kissing and touching and applying creams. And, and so the argument becomes more and more complex. What we do understand, and, and this was this pioneering LEAP study in the last 10 years, is that what the baby eats matters. If they're at risk and they eat peanut early, they can reduce their risk compared to those who don't by 81%. That is a, a staggering effect. And no matter how you look at that statistically, it, that strong effect remains. We like to extrapolate from egg. The data is a little bit weaker uh, from peanut. The data is a little bit weaker for egg and, and for, for, for other nuts. And so, yes, we encourage weaning. Breastfeeding is healthy for a million reasons, for mum and for the baby and for society. I get that a lot of when I was kind of researching it online, obviously, hopefully not have a kid anytime soon, but it's so interesting to get a lot of parents kind of talk about breastfeeding and what is kind of 
the best practice or the best way. Very emotive issue, but if, if you just focus your question on allergy and breastfeeding, the data is, is not convincing that breastfeeding will protect against food allergy, surprisingly, because yeah. it's so potent at, at so many other immune um, modula modulatory effects. What we do know is it doesn't make it worse. So breastfeeding is good for a million reasons. Allergy prevention, probably not the top of the list as to why you would do it, yeah. but there are many other reasons why. But I, I just say that so that the many moms who are unable to breastfeed for whatever reason do not feel guilty about introducing an infant formula in young babies. Yeah. And I think what, what advice would you give to kind of parents who are kind of potentially kind of worried about obviously allergies and obviously the, the kid kind of getting raised obviously in regards to kind of the the breastfeeding or kind of... Um. So I would uh, try, try and encourage parents uh, to keep perspective. Most children will not develop allergy. To try and, con uh, if your child has eczema, then start knocking on doors and, and don't accept no as an answer. So if your GP won't send you somewhere to get tested at the time of weaning, keep just right, keep, yeah. keep doing it. You have a right to get assessed. It's in all the guidelines, national and international guidelines. That eczema is a, a risk factor, particularly, once again, early, severe, generalized eczema in exposed areas um, is a risk factor. So knock on those doors and get your baby seen. Yes. Uh, try and wean early. So stay on your breast milk or, or if you can't on formula in the background, but get the big guns in. Don't sit on those yeah. little fruit pouches, five apples with a picture of Heidi running through the mountains. Yeah. We need peanut butter, cashew butter, sesame as tahini. We need egg. We need that in the diet so very early. early enough, Correct. From four health. months of age, when, when the baby is, yeah. is interested in food, following food around, trying to grab food off the siblings, has good head control, has lost their tongue thrust. If you try and feed solids to a baby too young, they'll push it out with their tongue. When those factors are overcome, trust your instincts. And moms know when their baby's hungry. The baby starts waking up all night and needs more and more feeds yeah. and is just obsessed with food. Feed your baby. We need to re-empower yeah. moms just to trust their natural instincts. No, I think that's going to be so helpful for, for moms because obviously when I kind of mentioned that I had you on the podcast, like, I had so many messages about weaning. So I think that'd be really helpful. I really want to kind of like touch upon like allergy anxiety, something which has affected me the last six months um, a lot more heavily than it has in, in the past. And it's something I've got kind of teenagers kind of reaching out to me. Um, is that something you've kind of seen within your kind of private and, and public? Yeah, there's a, a, a pandemic of anxiety. And I, and I think a lot of it is generated just by background life events. You know, we've been through a very stressful time in our history. Lockdown. I mean, how bizarre was that? Lack of socialization, a, a total change in our work structure. Uh, kids were kept away from from their friends. I'm very abnormal. We are such social creatures. And I feel that anxiety myself. Things have really, really changed. Anxiety in crowds, anxiety in restaurants that are understaffed or, yeah, or new stuff. So that's changed. And then, of course, if you're allergic or an allergic family, there's the additional overlay of dealing with all those issues that we know. So people should just accept um, and deal with uh, the, the fact that anxiety is now common and heightened. And there, there are definite techniques, and I know you're looking into this, and, and some of your podcasts will cover that. There are increasing techniques, mindfulness, and ways of dealing with this. Yeah. And it's a difficult thing in clinic to deal with because you spend very short time with families. But I need to say to older folk or, 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 or their families that the risk from food allergy is actually exceptionally low. The risk of coming to harm is very, very rare comp compared to other life events. But it's preventable and it's treatable. And so comparing it to lightning strikes or car accidents or acts of God is not very helpful. This is something you can manage and, and you need to manage. Um, and, and so people need to wrap their mind around that and have a level of caution 
But trying to control that is very, very hard. And, and there are big stress factors for parents. When you give up control of your child's care and their diet, it's stressful anyway for parents. But if they're allergic, somebody starts feeding them at nursery and at school and they go on camps and you know they become teenagers. And all the factors related to that can and are extremely stressful for most families. This is not a unique... Would you say like the media has probably played a massive part? Because it, obviously it's always on the top of my head. I try and avoid research analogies but then sometimes i have to to find um guests on the podcast but yeah yeah the media pick up on allergy they, they love an allergy story because the uh, people love reading about an allergy story however their focus is i find a little bit frustrating sometimes they, they will focus on on the most severe and the worst outcomes so that's helpful because people realize allergy is real it gets away from all the soft you know people that give allergy a bad name that think they have a, a, a touch of an intolerance you know to this and not that and and that frustrates society so people realize that some allergens, in fact, most allergens, if you are allergic, can cause severe harm, must be taken seriously. Legally, you have to take it seriously. You know, this is law in restaurants and, and within the UK and, and within Europe. So, Dan, just discussing the media's response uh, to allergies, my, my point was that the media will often fixate on rare events. And so that is very helpful because it helps change law and, and, and people's um, understanding of allergies. But it can make us very anxious when we see these stories again and again and again. It distorts them. As if these are common outcomes they are rare and absolutely tragic outcomes but but seeing these stories and the, so the media feed on that or they'll feed on on very rare allergies the amount of times i've been asked to comment on on water allergy or oh, yeah. or you know extremely rare for now I, I keep saying to the journalists let's just do peanut or something common yeah, some common people can kind of like more kind of kind of relate with kind of yeah so look we we guide the media don't we ultimately and then the media will feed on on these yeah. stories but so, so, sometimes it frustrates us all yeah, because I think like I've got friends asking me now about allergies, which they didn't do before as much. I say friends, like strangers, shall I say, you know, like work colleagues would speak about allergies. And I think that's probably a lot to do with like the media and it being definitely more at the forefront. But you, like you said, it just really, for me, increases that anxiety if I kind of research allergies and you hear about allergy deaths, which seem like it happened yesterday, but some of them might be from four or five years ago. But the it takes a while for kind of the inquest to happen. Then. We learn from all the inquests. There are, are definite lessons, often at a structural sort of help. Has there, has there been actually like any kind of key learnings from the inquest? Because obviously, I think with Natasha, it's like when you administer the second one, do it in the opposite leg. That always kind of stood out to me. But is there any kind of research or kind of findings which kind of have stood out to you? Yes, yeah, so the coroner reports usually show failings of some sort, that, that people in a, a severe scenario would phone 111 and not 999, would give you know no epi or epi too late or too low a dose of epi, um, or have had no training in this or give two into a similar site and not two. So there's always a little lesson we can learn. The bigger lessons, I think, are, is communication. When a reaction happens, you must recognize it, which can be very embarrassing. You, you would know this yourself. You're with your friends. You're at a party. Don't you know, go off to a toilet all, all on your own. You need to communicate that perhaps I'm not feeling so well. Yeah. Take your medicines. Follow your plan. Tell others. Communicate to healthcare systems. Locate yourself. And there are increasing apps and things that can facilitate, can facilitate this. Lack of communication or incorrect communication is often where, where things go wrong. Because there is knowledge and, and healthcare out there. But just to find your way through that system in the acute scenario uh, is, is, for me, a major key learning. And certainly, so I see a lot of patients who've, who've recently had adrenaline uh, administered and they're very traumatized by this. And I try and build it into a positive. And I say, look, 
uh, to pity your child had a reaction, but accidental reactions happen. The good thing was they communicated with a teacher who called the healthcare system, who got the plan out, who got the medicine out, who called you. Things were in place. Uh, your, your, your child eventually did well. They're a bit traumatized by this. But trying to emphasize the positive, these are, are sort of near-miss scenarios for, for what we hope will never happen and it does never happen to most food allergic folk is a, a very severe anaphylactic. Because when I administer the EpiPen, there's always that kind of fear of using it. But I think now I've used it, I kind of feel a bit less anxious that if they ever did feel like my neck swollen up, I would just kind of use it straight away. Yeah, these adrenaline auto-injectors, uh, which give adrenaline, can really help during the acute setting uh, when, when symptoms are severe. But they create a lot of anxiety and often become the focus of allergy management. So do others have pens? Do they have knowledges? Are, are these pens in date? Do I have two or four or six, you know, for my second and, and third partner? And do I, have, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a huge everyday stress. And I think we all can't wait until the time that there's a, a nasal spray or a tablet of adrenaline that gets away from this injectable device. It's in, injecting your child as simple as these um, auto injectors are. They're very hard to do in, in the heat of battle. Parents, because it's terrible having to treat your ill child and, you, and you're trying to communicate with others. And I've seen this. In our clinical trials, we offer parents the opportunity to give the AAI if their child's going to react. And they are very well-trained parents. And uh, it's not always easy for them to do that. And it's a very traumatic thing. And the kid gets very angry with a parent or, or, or caregiver who's just done this. Everyone is staring at them. It's embarrassing. So we need to get uh, past the AAI. It's all we have at the moment, so we need to focus and, and, and yep. put them in, in place as best we can. But I think we'll have a very different discussion when you pop around in 10, yeah. 20 years. <laughs> I know, it's interesting. I was going to say, it's, it's interesting, but the, the EpiPen, obviously it's been around, is it 15, 20 years now? Um, it's not got any smaller. I, it's, it's quite a big thing, definitely for a guy, you know, nights out and putting it in his pocket. So it'd be interesting to see whether the, the shape or size of it, and I've, I've seen a few things pop up. Yeah, there've been many other um, people have tried to come up with other devices. The AcriQ was probably the best. It, 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 had a, it, it could speak. It, it's not available in the UK. It was available in the US. It would tell you what to do. It had different doses, which is very helpful. It was square, like a, a very large credit card, as it yeah. were. Yeah, the, the standard auto-injectors that we now use, the, the Emirate, the Jex, and the EpiPen, particularly for guys, if you don't have a, a handbag or man bag on you, is yeah. a very hard thing to carry. It doesn't fold in your pocket. It looks awkward. Teenagers yeah. get embarrassed by it. Um, and the, yeah. these logistic things add up to kids not actually carrying them. Yeah, because I remember as a teenager, like trying to put it in my skinny jeans. Obviously, I don't wear any skinny jeans now. But yeah, it's, but even now, like, I get my, if I go out my girlfriend, I get her to like carry one and I carry one. Or even with guys as well, like trying to put two of them in your pocket with your wallet and your phone, it yeah. you a bit of a struggle sometimes. I want to kind of what touch upon allergy anxiety again and kind of, how do you distinguish between um, a panic attack and kind of allergic reaction? Because I, I really struggle with that. In a say if I'm in a restaurant, I'll come out with the red rash on my neck and I'll be asking my partner, like, is it allergic reaction or is it a panic attack? I think I get myself so worked up when I eat in restaurants now, I'll come out with a red rash. So I'm always looking out for hives. If, if I don't see any hives, then I'm usually like, I'm safe. But yeah, so a, a classic severe allergic reaction, you will usually have more than one system involved. So you, you will eat, the food, if it's a food allergen causing it, and your mouth will alarm. It, it'll feel um, spiky or metallic or fuzzy or painful. People use different words to describe it yeah. because the sensation of itch and pain travel on a very similar nerve. So your brain, okay. it's a bit like touching a hot plate. You don't know if it's hot or cold. So something will go, for a split second, something will go wrong in your mouth. 
That's usually the first sign. Then you may have a little cough and a tickle in the back of your throat, and you may get some gut symptoms as you swallow it, some, some pain or perhaps a vomit, depending on age. Um, you can wheeze with it, and often you will get a rash. Not always, but often you will get a rash and, and some swelling of the eyes, and, and the rash can spread. It can be a diffuse sort of red fruit-like rash, or it can be hives and mottled and geographic. So that's easy. When they're multi-systems and your mouth feels um, horrible and you suddenly realize the food actually did contain your allergen. A panic attack can, can give you a, a sensation that you suddenly want to vomit or there's sort of a bolus obstruction you can't swallow or your throat is suddenly tight. And with anxiety, you know this when you interview, you can get a bit blotchy. Yeah. So anxiety can give you that yeah. blotchy rash. So that is hard. If you suddenly feel my chest is tight or my throat's tight, and your partner, somebody will tell you, you've got a little red blotchy rash. You, you can never be 100% sure. Luckily, Definitely with a tight throat, because that's, that's when I get really panicked when I've got a bit of a redneck, the anxiety, and then a the Anxiety tight, yeah. with, with um, cognitive behavioral therapy and just breathing techniques, you, you should quite quickly be able to overcome that, which you won't with an allergy. That's a biological sort of yeah. storm happening on its own. So just prolonged expiration, breathing, calm communication should overcome many anxiety attacks. Yeah, no, I think that's really good to know because I know it's something which just feels like it's on the rise now and I get more kind of teenagers kind of reaching out to me and I'm trying to find the resource as well, which I've, I've, I think I quite struggle with as well, you know, trying to find the, the resource out there. And I feel like there's not too much of that at the minute, right? Yeah. There are many um, very good um, allergy psychologists. So you need the basic psychology skills, but you also need some allergy knowledge to work in this field. And increasingly, we find a psychologist who has experience with an allergy. Yeah. And because otherwise these fears become crippling. I, I see families on a weekly basis that won't let their child sleep over, even with, with family that won't travel anywhere, that have to pick a school that is very close. Parents will influence their work patterns so that they can be called if something happens. It really can influence quality of life. Yeah, and I, I know it definitely kind of affects like millions of others. I kind of want to talk about public transport and kind of like allergies in regards to kind of airborne how do you know, right, I think the first question would be, can you go into anaphylactic shock through airborne if someone's eating nuts near you? So it, it's possible, but it's very hard to prove this scientifically. There are many studies, mainly done with nuts, yeah. where people are exposed, so you'd smear it on their skin. I'm, we skin pick test kids every day. I've been doing this for many, many years. So you'd actually inject, albeit you know, very superficially, their allergen into the skin. And thankfully, we just don't see anaphylaxis from that. It's described, but it's phenomenally rare. So inhalation of nuts is, is not a big risk factor um, for severe reaction. You'll obviously feel very anxious seeing nuts around you. You'd smell them and see them and you would know that is, you know, your villain and, and you, you can have anxiety related phenomena to that. But there are studies where, where the nuts are held very close, where they trampled, where people are exposed to this and it's very hard um, to induce severe reactions. Would you even get like a mild allergic reaction potentially? If, if I'm sat on a train and say if you're sat opposite me and you open a bag of peanuts, is there chances that I could have a mild reaction but it won't be there, there's, there's always a chance. I mean, proteins can travel through the air, but scientifically there are many studies that battle to reproduce that in a, in a controlled scientific setting. And in airplanes, which really scares people, particularly newer airplanes, the filtration systems are, are really good as well. So it's ingesting a nut on a plane or public transport that is the risk. 
touching it and touching your face or your eyes will, of course, you know, cause uh, discomfort and hives and swelling. Um, but but the risk from public transport is very very low. Allergen depending. Fish that smell from cooked fish does actually contain protein. So if you, you know, typical thing, Friday lunch at school, they'd cook, cook a lot of fish and the fish allergic kids would cough and get red and, and sneeze with that. So I try and encourage my patients to be away from fish allergen and milk can aerosolize. Right. So fish and milk are more, far more easily aerosolized. In, in comparison to nuts. To, to yeah. nuts, yeah. But they get very little respect on sort of airline uh, travel. You never hear, you know, there's a fish allergic patient on the... And so that creates a lot of anxiety because often fish is served on long, long haul flights and milk, you know, creamy sauces. So when all these silver foils are lifted off the meal, luckily with masks now, it's very easy to travel with a good quality mask and... I encourage people just to to wear a wrap around neck, which many women travel with anyway. And if if you can smell it, the smell rapidly gets taken. I'm gonna ask about that because when I when I obviously board a plane now, I always wear a mask, so that hopefully should if someone didn't listen to the announcement or didn't hear it that should be able to that would help significantly of course the allergen could be exposed to your eyes you may get itchy eyes but but if you're not allergic the risk is exceptionally low um that's really interesting because i always i'm also when i get on a train i always feel like there's always someone kind of eating nuts and and like don't get me wrong i always ask them politely but then the anxiety takes over then i'm like oh like yeah, but it but doesn't. Then, I can fully understand that. Yeah. yeah, I flew the other day and somebody ate um, a commercial sweet with peanut in, and it really, really smelt. And I was thinking to myself, "Are you allergic to that? That would really trouble you." Yeah. So many people are aware of what their nut smells like and looks like, and that does induce anxiety when you see it. Um, and so I like for airlines just to acknowledge that the people who are allergic to know that they have a plan, um, you know, treatment on board. But there are many allergens in the world. It's very hard uh, for people to avoid all of these. And that, that argument comes up in school. Should my school be nut-free? You know, nut gets all the respect. But I see people all day who are allergic to chickpea, lentil, oat. Um, yeah. and, and so the focus really, and certainly as kids get older and they, can't, uh, and they can look after themselves as opposed to younger kids, the focus really needs to go on to empowering the kitchen and the child to identify and avoid the allergen. As opposed to blanket laws, because pe- a lot of reactions still happen in school. You know, people will send a, a pesto in that has cashew as opposed to what everyone thinks is pine nut. You know, it's a common mistake. Yeah. And, and so I we mean, need to focus on that aspect as opposed to just saying the school is nut free. Yeah, I mean, that's another discussion that actually on the Instagram story this week. So I put someone had um, got pesto and it had like pine nuts in. But then pine nuts, it's classed as a seed. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, depending on. And they say, obviously, if you've got a tree nut allergy, it's not always that common that you'd be allergic to pine nuts. I mean, I'm not going to eat pine nuts tomorrow, but like... Yeah, so pine nut allergy is very rare. Uh, the term nut is a bit clumsy. It's kind of a culinary thing. It's not botanical. It's not allergenic. I always joke with my patients, can you eat a donut, for example, or coconut or pine nut? You know, this discussion comes up a lot. The human system can become allergic to, to any food, but common things happen commonly. And so the, the allergens usually are high in protein. Um, and nuts are high in protein. So the classification, we know that it's important for some nuts that are related. You know, cashew and pistachio are close cousins. Walnut and pecan are close cousins. But the others are, are quite distant um, in, in the allergen structure. Would you say, is eggs the most common then? Egg, uh, egg allergy. Because obviously you hear a lot about nut allergies, but it's egg, Correct. In young children, yeah. egg and milk allergy would be the commonest worldwide. But they're most likely to outgrow that. Correct. Yeah. And so at a societal level, they represent less of a risk, whereas nut allergies, which are you know re- relatively common, sort of 2% of most Western countries, mm-hmm. are persistent. 
<clears throat> so at a society level, they like more of a problem. I kind of wanted to kind of briefly kind of touch upon kind of ouch testing. I've not done it since I was probably about 18 now. Um, how often should you do kind of ouch testing on, per, on personally, do you think I should get another ouch test soon? Like just to be sure. <laughs> so then we spoke a little bit earlier about the, the different types of, of allergies. So in, in young infants, some allergies are outgrown, the egg and milk. So you, you do need sequential testing to see when the tests are getting smaller. And then there's opportunity to, to start introducing in, in a safe manner. The allergies develop over the first um, two or three years. So you want to keep an eye on which nuts are safe to eat, which are dangerous. And then it becomes pretty static until, and if you're unlucky, you develop the pollen allergies and the oral allergy syndrome kicks in. So that's kind of seven, eight, nine years of age, sometimes into your teenage years. Also, you can develop asthma and hay fever and, and, and your eczema can play up. So you want to be aware of your air allergies, your food allergies, those that can be outgrown, those that can develop. So repeat testing when you're younger and sort of annual basis is ideal. Some people do it every, every two years. Once you're in your teenage years, your eczema has hopefully calmed down, your asthma is nicely under control, hay fever you understand fully, then there's probably less value of, of having frequent tests. Um, and your diet is also sort of established. But if there is room to move, as there often is in younger children, to introduce safe foods, then I'm obviously, I'm an allergist. I'm more in favor of, of frequent testing. And I think families appreciate that. Yeah. And the usual say is that after your kind of teenage years, and if you still got an allergy, then you're probably going to have it for the, for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hate agreeing to that. Biologically, you can outgrow an allergy at, at any time. But the, the nuts and seeds and certain allergies and milk and egg as, a, as an adult will usually be persistent. Yeah. And I, and I think in regards to like allergy testing as well, obviously the skin prick is only kind of one bit of it. What is kind of the gold standard to go to? So the, the most important thing is the clinical history. Have you eaten this? Did you tolerate it? Were there any symptoms? But of course, in younger kids, they haven't eaten it on, on folk who follow a very strict diet or avoid all nuts, they may not have eaten it. So history is not going to help you much. You then can go to IgE testing. So IgE is the allergy antibody. Most of it resides in your tissues, your skin, your eyes, your esophagus. And so skin testing is very accurate um, for that. If it's highly positive or negative, it carries um, a high positive predictive and negative predictive value with some caveats depending on, 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 on the type of allergy. IgE testing is the blood test. Yes. And there are many modalities that can trap the uh, specific IgE and, and put a value to it. That technology is increasing and also the component testing. So we know peanut, for example, has many proteins, you know, over 25 distinct proteins. Yeah. And we can now look at the proteins in it and say, you know, if you're ARAH2 and 6 allergic, that's probably with a high degree of certainty um, peanut allergy. If it's one and three, less so. If it's eight, yeah. it's probably because you've got pollen allergy. Yeah. So our understanding has advanced enormously. Yeah. And then, of course, the gold standard, if, if there's an equivocal scenario, so testing and history only take you so far, is a challenge in a safe and supervised setting. If the risk is very low, we just do a cumulative challenge, like a feed. And if it's higher, then we do an incremental challenge, again, in a safe setting with experienced staff. Yeah. That's now, the gold standard. 
dies ago standard no it's great to kind of clear that up anyway it's been great it's been an absolute pleasure to kind of have you on the podcast and obviously thanks again for kind of having me down to kind of record the podcast if anyone kind of wants to follow you on instagram we've got your handles for anyone who wants to kind of reach out sure you can find me london allergy doctor on instagram and uh, at go allergy on twitter um pretty pretty active on that and enjoy the interacting with with patients and others yeah. there and of course just for anyone watching you there's lots more advice um, on allergy uk on uk anaphylaxis campaign or, or not called anaphylaxis i believe yeah they've done a rebrand haven't they so yeah <laughs> the australasian allergy site i find very helpful in the big american site which is four a's and an i the quad a i oh, i've seen that yeah yeah a very very helpful site yeah that's amazing anyway thanks again for coming on the podcast